And because you can't live on bread alone, though if I'm honest, I feel like I could give it a good old college try, the people start to, and I'm not kidding, fondly remember their time in slavery because at least they had more than just crispy God bread to eat, right? So God sends them what to eat as well? Quail, yes, and this is where we begin our story today. So they are eating bread and meat, obviously delightful every day. And this is where we find ourselves. So I find it maybe most helpful before I begin the actual sermon today to do just a little Exodus recap. Now, if you are a person who follows along in the lectionary, you might notice if you read ahead or you look ahead, which I, I kind of doubt a lot of you do, but maybe just if you do, uh, Exodus is not a part of the typical lectionary for this Sunday. What usually happens is the the lectionary deciders of long ago choose a gospel text, then they find a, a Hebrew scripture text to kind of match it or back it up, and then they choose other ones to fill in. So most of the texts that are chosen kind of match that gospel text. But recognizing that some people might want to read parts of the Hebrew scriptures that are not scheduled to match a gospel, there is this side thing called the semi-continuous, I love it, where you're kind of getting a big chunk of Hebrew scripture and you get to read it for a certain number of weeks. So that's where this text comes from, Exodus 17 comes from this semi-continuous reading, which we haven't been doing, but I like the text so much, I kind of set aside the gospel reading for the day to focus in on Exodus. There is a lot of misunderstanding about some of these stories in Genesis and Exodus that we assume when we pair them only with the gospel text, they can only be read in light of the gospel of Jesus. But they have a lot to say and a lot to say about God and the gospel and grace and faith and God's love apart from Jesus altogether. So that's one of the reasons I chose this text today. I love the Exodus story. It is awesome. Uh, and depending on your generation, either Charlton Heston or DreamWorks' Prince of Egypt has helped solidify the story of the Exodus in your mind. It kind of depends on where you fall. Maybe, like me, you got lucky, you got both. That's cool too. Um, but just in case you need a refresher into the full story of the Exodus, here we go. So we're in chapter 17 today, but way back in chapter 3, the Israelites are groaning under the weight of slavery in Egypt. And Moses is called by God from a burning bush, telling him to go set the people of God free. Now Moses is a reluctant prophet, and he offers a number of excuses why this is a bad decision on God's part. Who am I? Who are you? Why would they believe me? I'm not a good speaker, etc., etc. It goes on for a while. And suffice it to say, God wins every argument that Moses puts in front of him. Moses sets off again very reluctantly to Egypt and tells Pharaoh to let God's people go over a series of plagues sent by God through Moses to force Pharaoh's hand. Pharaoh does indeed finally say yes to freeing the people. I am glossing over a lot here. I just want you to know. You're all like, wait, that's not in my children's Bible. You all know it. It's fine. But this is 
the, full, the, the quick story of this, okay? Then over and over again, every time Pharaoh says yes, Pharaoh changes his mind until the final plague where the firstborn sons of the Egyptians die and the Israelites flee quickly and cross the Red Sea. And then when they are being pursued by the Egyptian, the Red Sea closes around them and they all drown. It's very violent. We don't talk about that part. It's fine. But you can see why it's fodder for movie making, right? It is all grand and interesting. And what a tale, right? So at this point, they have crossed the Red Sea. The Israelites sing songs of celebration and rejoice that they have left the burden of oppression and slavery behind, and they begin their journey to the land that God has promised them. After a little while, they find themselves in the wilderness of sin. This is not a metaphor. It is a real place, okay? An actual stretch of land between Elam and Sinai called the wilderness of sin. It's an actual wilderness, which is another name for desert, or as my favorite author, Barbara Brown Taylor says, wilderness is any place that can kill you, otherwise it's a park. So note, this is not a park, this is a wilderness, all right? That's why she's the best, y'all. So they are in the wilderness just long enough now for their food and grain that they had hastily packed on their way out of Egypt to start to run out. So they ask Moses, who asks God, um, how are we gonna eat out here? And they receive what? Manna, there you go. Yep, good, you're still with me. And because you can't live on bread alone, though if I'm honest, I feel like I could give it a good old college try, the people start to, and I'm not kidding, fondly remember their time in slavery because at least they had more than just crispy God bread to eat, right? So God sends them what to eat as well? Quail, yes. And this is where we begin our story today. So they are eating bread and meat, obviously delightful every day. And this is where we find ourselves. Earlier in Exodus, they had camped for a little while at Elam, which had a fresh spring of water. But now they are fully far away from that. And the place where they are camping has no fresh water to drink, which means as they stay there longer and longer, their water supply that they have been carrying with them starts to dwindle. They had lived in Egypt long enough to know that no water means no survival. You cannot survive without water. So at this moment, what do they do? Do they make a kind request to God who has done, I don't know, kind of a lot for them up to this point? No, they grumble. The Hebrew word here is reeb, which means contend or quarrel. We need water, they cry. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? They yell at Moses. Why bring us from there if we're just going to die here? They are upset. I don't know if that's the right word. They have some feelings. I actually have a little bit of sympathy here for these parched Israelites. After all, they are in a strange place. They are traveling. They are tired. They are scared. They have been through some stuff. It makes a lot of sense, actually, that they aren't handling it all that well. The in-between place is hard. 
The Israelites are not where they used to be, but they also are not yet where they are going. They are in this liminal space. Word nerds, pay attention. That word liminal comes from the Latin limen, which means threshold. It is this time between what was and what is next. Liminal spaces are places of transition, full of nostalgic appeal. They make us look backward with rose-colored glasses, because no matter what it was, at least we knew what it was. And since we don't know what is coming, a liminal space can often become filled with anxiety and fear. It can make us forget how far we've come, how we got there, and how much we survived. Does it sound familiar at all to anyone? So Moses takes these complaints to God in the best way. He's like, God, help me. They're so mad about this. They're going to stone me, and I'm literally just doing what you told me to do. And God, in what I feel like is just a sigh, tells Moses, bring your staff to the rock at Horeb, strike it, and water's going to come out of the rock. It'll happen. So Moses does this, right? He strikes the rock with his staff, water comes out, the people drink water, and stop grumbling. For now, anyway, don't worry, they will always find something new to complain about. Moses is so annoyed at the whole thing, he names the place they are camping, Masa and Meribah, a double name that scholar and author Victor Hamilton translates as Testingville and Complainingburg. Moses, it's delightful. It's almost petty, actually. I kind of love it. And the storyteller takes a moment here to tell us that Moses named these places because the Israelites had grumbled and asked, is the Lord among us or not? That is the question, isn't it? When we are in a liminal space, a threshold, no longer where we used to be, not yet where we are going. The question that most often bubbles up from somewhere deep in our soul is this exact one. Is God here or not? Because we can't be sure, right? I mean, it doesn't feel like God is among us. Remember the good old days when God was with us? Those are the best weren't they? Remember the days when the church was the center of civic life? When all we had to do was hypothetically open a church in a growing suburban area and we could just fill it? Those are the good old days. I mean, sure, back in those days, women couldn't be ordained and neither could queer people. And in fact, most queer people couldn't even be out and attend church. But that's not the point, right? It was so much better back then. Right? See what a liminal space does to how we look back at the past? Fear about the future makes us so much less honest about what we have been through. But being honest about the past is the only way we move forward. 
and it's scary, and it's hard, and most of us would honestly just rather not. Grumbling is easier, complaining is easier, dreaming about and longing for the way it used to be is easier. I get it, I'm with you, I understand. But it is all just different ways of being afraid. I'm in week nine of a 12-week course that I started during sabbatical on creativity and writing. We have a daily writing assignment, weekly reading assignments, and then I spend part of my weekly Sabbath every Thursday in a group with other people also doing this course. It's been so good. It's been so, so good. This past week, I was doing our reading assignment, and imagine my surprise, I got to a section that was all about fear. It was about what it does to us, how it can make us stuck, not able to see what's in front of us, how it causes us to do full U-turns and double back. The chapter was filled with all sorts of traveling metaphors that fit today's text, even though what I was reading had literally nothing to do with God or the Exodus or even faith. The author of this book, artist Julia Cameron, says the only cure for fear like this is love. You cannot work your way out of it. You can't fight your way out of it. You can only love your way through it. It felt like the spirit was just plopping exactly what I needed to read in front of me. It was almost impossible to not put these two seemingly unrelated readings together. This story that honestly repeats itself a few times in Exodus pokes at me every time. And I think what gets me the most is the problem that people have isn't actually with God. The wilderness is just doing what the wilderness does and being all wild, right? In the midst of this wilderness, which can kill you, we get scared, and when we get scared, we start to doubt that God is going to stay with us, even though we don't have any proof of God's departure from the moment. And then, even in the midst of that very real fear, which comes out as grumbling as we set up camp in Complainingburg and Testingville, it is then that God provides. At that moment, now, I know I just preached about getting judge, not getting judgy last week, and I'm going to get real judgy for a second here because the Israelites totally do not deserve what they get at this moment. If I was God, I'd be like, why would I give you water? You're being the worst right now, right? How many times have I told my own teenager that whining and complaining doesn't actually work? It doesn't get you what you want. Let's just sit down and have a conversation. That doesn't usually work either. I just want to be clear. She is 13. How many times have you used or heard the phrase, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar? This is right in our culture. They totally don't deserve it. But the behavior of the Israelites does not determine God's presence in that moment. 
Their situational fear and the way they react towards God doesn't change God's love for them. Thank goodness for that. Love was the way through their fear, or more specifically, God's love was the way through their fear. Again. Again. And they don't get it, and it'll happen again, and it'll happen a hundred more times throughout all of Scripture. It happens right now, today, as you're sitting here. God shows up all the time in all people, in all places. This is what has been promised. And sometimes when we're in that liminal space, the place where we aren't where we used to be, but aren't where we're going yet, it's really hard to believe. It is so hard to believe the promise of God. It can make us doubt. It can make us grumble and complain and ask that big, scary question, is God here or not? This is when being a Lutheran is kind of the best. I just want to throw that out there. We, don't, we like to be humble, but this is when we're the best. It is in these times when we ask this question, when we have this not sure feeling where we feel the big question rise up from within us, is God with us? This is why we have sacraments. This is why we gather around physical things like water and wine and bread. To be clear, to be very clear, it's not that God needs sacraments. God certainly can work outside of the sacraments and does all the time, every day. You all know it. You've all experienced it. We need it. We need these moments, regular physical moments to gather where we can see and taste and touch and remember that God has promised to meet us here. We need these moments to remember God has promised to be with us in the bread and in the wine and in the water, in and around and through. These sacraments are for us. It's the staff against the rock, giving us water to drink, to hold us over until we get scared again and doubt again, and then we come back here. Here, actually, right here. This is where God meets you every time. I believe, truly, in my very heart, that God meets us everywhere. But sometimes it is really really nice to have this table, this place, this bread, this cup, to remind us that God is among us. Is God among us or not? The answer when we're here is yes. Yes. Amen.
So it can be a challenge in the liminal space to feel like God goes with us, but we have been reminded yet again today that God's presence is in and through and around us and the world around us. So we take that reminder with us into the world that is going to tell us over and over again, God is not with you, you are all alone. And God says, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you, you are not alone. So we take that promise in us, with us, physically eating it, tasting it, touching it today, the presence of God goes with us as we go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.